Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Kudzu Killers, Homicide, and Sweet Tea. It's so freaking cold here right now, I can't believe it. It's supposed to be minus one tonight. Are you kidding me? That's just not right here in Texas. But we've got our blankets and our fireplace and our hot chocolate, and uh, I'm not afraid to use that bag of marshmallows I got in the pantry. How about the weather down by you, Lark? Well, you're a courageous woman. <laughs> uh, you know, when the marshmallows come out, ooh, she's bringing the big you. guns out. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, actually, it's um, it's not that cold, although it's threatening to be uh, 19 degrees tomorrow. And and I actually live near the the coast on in Texas, so it shouldn't be that cold. No. So we've sent. Uh, the man out to build uh, feral cat cages, which Kim loves to tell me I'm a crazy cat lady, but there it is. So he is proof off, positive. He is <laughs> off at the Home Depot finding goods to build me six feral cat shelters for the night. <laughs> anyway, that's what we're doing this afternoon, besides talking to you guys and listening to you, a wonderful story that I know Kim has for us today. So. I don't know how wonderful it is. It's pretty sad. Um, Today we're going to talk about the tragic rape and murder of a very popular elementary school teacher, 25-year-old Christy Mirak. Yeah, that's not wonderful. I don't know if you've heard of this one or not, Lark, but I uh, I caught an older episode of 2020 a while back, and it was just such a heartbreaking story. I ended up doing a little bit of research on it and decided I'd like to cover it here. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, this story took place in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, which is Amish country, where outside of town there are beautiful farmlands and rolling hills dotted with trees. Have you ever been there to that part of Pennsylvania? I have not. I would like to, but um, that is, uh, alas, one place that's not been explored by my feet. Well, it's got, Lancaster's got less than 60,000 residents, and it's about an hour and a half west of Philadelphia. You'd think it'd be fairly safe there since it's kind of a small town and a pretty good distance away from a big city. It's ranked number 25 in the safest towns in Pennsylvania. Mm. 
but you have a 1 in 31 chance of being the victim of a crime there, which is higher than 95% of the rest of the state. Wow. That that kind of burst my bubble there when I saw that statistic. I was thinking bucolic, kind of sleepy place, but I guess it's not really. I mean, it's not Detroit or Memphis, but, you know. Still. it's You need to have your uh, pepper spray with you when you go out at night. That's a sad thing. But they did have one well-known crime back in 2006 where a gunman went into a one-room Amish school there and shot 10 children, killing six of them. Do you remember that one? He just went in and started shooting up the place, a a one-room schoolroom. Oh, my gosh. I think I do. It was called the West Nickel Mine School Shooting. Oh, right, right. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. But before that happened... There was a shocking murder there of a young elementary school teacher by the name of Christy Merak. Christy was born and raised in the coal mining town of Shemoykin. I think that's how you say that. Situated in central Pennsylvania, northwest of Philadelphia. And its population was about 7,000. So it's a very small town. Right. Still small. She was a go-getter. If she decided to do something, she did it. And what she wanted to do was teach more than anything. Aww. So she graduated from Millersville University and took a position at Roarstown Elementary School in Lancaster. According to those who knew her, some former students that they interviewed and co-workers and the principal of the school, she was very passionate about her job and about the kids, and she was a favorite among the kids and the faculty alike, and she took her job of teaching very seriously. That's awesome. So when she didn't show up for work on December 21st, 1992... The Roarstown Elementary principal, Harry Goodman, knew something was wrong. He tried calling her several times. He called her mother to see if she knew where Christy might be. He told her mom he was going to go check on her at her house. She lived in a town home there. And it'd probably be just a flat tire or something, and he'd change it for her. But nice when guy. he got there to Christy's apartment, he noticed that her front door was slightly open. It was then he knew something bad had happened because she wouldn't leave it like that. She was very safety conscious. Right. He went inside her apartment and found her on the living room floor, badly beaten, and he went to a neighbor's house and called 911. Aww. It turned out she'd been bashed in the head and face, raped, and then strangled with her sweater. Aww. It was 9.22 a.m. when he called 911, so a couple of hours since her roommate left. Her roommate uh, would leave about 7 o'clock, and uh, Christy would leave about 7.45 to go to work. And when police got there, she was definitely dead. They saw that, and they saw that there was severe blunt force trauma to her head. Her pants and underwear had been ripped off her body, and her shirt and jacket had been pushed upward, according to a court document there. A wooden cutting board, the weapon that they figured had been used in her beating, was laying next to her head. And they had beaten her so bad, the person had, that they had told her family that it would be better if they didn't even identify her because it was that bad. Oh, that's horrible. Now, the Christmas packages she'd been wrapping were all over the place, telling the detectives that there had been a struggle, a pretty significant struggle. Mm-hmm. And in addition to semen, there was blood, and not all of it belonged to Christy. Good. She'd put up a pretty good fight. And I hope so. She just won. She couldn't win. Yeah. Now, the previous night, Christy had been wrapping presents for her sixth grade students. Oh. 
She'd bought them each a copy of a book called Miracles on Maple Hill and planned on giving them this gift before Christmas break started. Aww. And she headed home to Shemoykin to be with her family. She's a really good teacher. Yeah. Her roommate said, as I said earlier, that she'd left for work about 7 a.m. And, Mar- and Christy was getting ready for work and usually left around 7.30 or 7.45 Two people that were walking nearby reported hearing a high-pitched scream between 7.10 and 7.20. Uh-huh. According to the autopsy, there was severe blunt force trauma to Christie's neck, back, upper chest, and face, and her jaw was fractured. Wow. She'd been strangled and sexually assaulted, and her death was ruled homicide by strangulation. The thing is, like I said before, Christy was very safety conscious. She knew she was living in a city that could kind of be unsafe sometimes, so she was careful about keeping everything locked up, whether she was home or not. And there were no signs of forced entry. So that left detectives feeling that there was one of two scenarios. Either she knew the person at the door, or she was surprised by the killer as she was leaving home to head for school. Right, because maybe somebody had been watching her or knew her habits either way. Right. Of course, Mr. Goodman was considered a suspect at first since he found the body. They always do that. It's pretty common. But he was quickly cleared. They also had a suspect in a former boyfriend, a man who was 20 years older than her and married, Hmm. who had shown up at the school the day of her murder asking to see her, which they thought was kind of weird. He brought flowers with him. And then the next day, he asked the assistant superintendent if he could attend the grief counseling at the school that they were offering for teachers and students. And he was told, uh, no, you shouldn't even be here. Well, good. That is creepy. Yeah, but he was also cleared after DNA testing showed he didn't match the semen found on Christy in the carpet beneath her body. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't him. Still is creepy. Yeah, it's kind of weird. Dozens of people were brought in for questioning, but were dismissed as suspects in one way or another. Part of the problem was that uh, Christy was really intensely private about her personal life. So nobody knew if she was dating anybody at the time, or if they knew, they didn't know who it was. So there was no one to look for, really. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. DNA was submitted to the National Database, and it didn't get any hits. Remember, this is 1993 at this point, so the database isn't what it is now. uh, And the killer wouldn't probably have been in there unless he'd been in prison for some sort of sexual crime, I'm thinking, back at that time. So they didn't really have a lot to choose from unless the person just happened to be in trouble for that sort of thing before, really. Right. By New Year's Day, 1993, now this was December 21st, right before Christmas, by New Year's Day... 1993, there were witnesses who said they saw a white man, muscular, driving a white car. They thought it was maybe a 1993 Dodge Shadow or a 1990 Dodge Daytona or maybe even a Toyota, perhaps a Toyota Celica. Uh-huh. It had black louvers on the back window, of, and it was a hatchback. In May, at this point six months after the murder, a woman said she saw a white guy stocky with long stringy brown hair and deep set eyes she even described what he was wearing a faded shirt black and white and blue and blue jeans the police did a sketch according to her description and released it to the public but nobody came forward and said anything 
Now, by July of 1993, the police updated the description of the car. They now said it was an 87 to 1991 faded silver Dodge Daytona hatchback with black louvers on the back window. They were sure Christy knew her killer. They just needed to find out who it was. So over the next couple of years, they interviewed nearly 1,500 people and eliminated over 60 men using DNA testing. Wow. But then the case went cold. Then a decade later, remember Chandra Levy? I do. The Chandra Levy case happened, and that she was, a, for those of you who don't remember, she was a Washington, D.C. intern for Representative Gary Condit, and she disappeared, and her skeletal remains were found later, I believe. Mm-hmm. Well, shortly after that, the Lancaster Sunday News local newspaper received a call. The guy wouldn't say his name, but he said he and some friends had been talking about the Levy case the previous night, and he had a story for them. Uh-oh. He said they should do a story about promiscuous women who lived a double life. Oh. Then he tossed out Christy's name. He said he knew her brother Vince and that he knew there was a barn on the family's property where Christy took men to have sex with them. He basically called her a whore. They didn't say the word he used, but that's pretty much what I figured it was. Right. But sort of inferred they should expect something like this to happen to them, these women who were promiscuous and went out with all kinds of men and had a double life. Blaming the victim. Blame the victim, always. But the Mirax didn't have a barn on their property. Oh. So that was basically a load of manure. There you go. Somebody just wanting Christy to look bad, I guess, and maybe figuring the reporter wouldn't check out the information or something before they published it. I don't know. And the FBI was brought in. But they couldn't identify who called or where the call came from, unfortunately. So we're going to take a little break here for our sponsors. And when we get back, the 14-year wait for a suspect and the genetic genealogist who helped track down a killer. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Hi, I'm Jules from Riddle Me That True Crime. I'm Robin Warder from The Trail Went Cold, and Jules and I want to tell you a little bit about a case that means a great deal to us, the death of nine-month-old baby Jacob Landine on April the 10th, 1987, in Socorro, New Mexico. The day prior to his death, on April 9th, baby Jacob was being watched by his mother Brenda's new boyfriend, John, not his real name, in his mobile home on 1453 Fatima Drive. While John was babysitting Jacob, Jacob would incur what would be his second head injury in a period of weeks. The prior head injury was a subdural hematoma, or brain bleed, and it was serious enough that it needed to be lanced to take pressure off baby Jacob's brain while being monitored by doctors over the course of several days. The circumstances surrounding how Jacob was injured and subsequently died are murky at best, with the suspect giving multiple versions of the events of the day, 
ranging from Jacob choking and accidentally hitting his head while trying to dislodge a cookie, to Jacob falling and John returning to see the injured infant. The suspect also reportedly confessed to two officers that he was indeed responsible, but there is no paper or audio record of this confession in the police file. The reasons given by the DA for not pursuing the case are confusing as well, with one of the reasons being that they were worried that John would file charges against the state. It was the opinion of the doctors that baby Jacob was struck in the head and this was no accident. In the years to follow, John goes on to sexually abuse young Eric, as well as physically abusing his mother Brenda, and emotionally abusing and isolating them both, making the world very small. During the autopsy, layers of abuse seem to be present. A healing rib fracture from around the time of the first head injury is also discovered. It's impossible to say exactly when the injury took place, but what is clear is that someone was abusing young Jacob, and that person was most likely John. Eric Landin, Jacob's brother, has been fighting to get justice for him. However, he faces some obstacles such as the statute of limitations of six years on second-degree murder that State Representative Bill Ream has petitioned to have overturned. Join Robin and I, as well as criminologist Dr. Ashley Wellman, an investigative expert, a legal expert, a forensic psychiatrist, as well as Jacob's brother Eric, as we explore all angles of this case and try to bring awareness, understanding, and hopefully, ultimately, justice for Jacob. The series starts on March the 1st. Tune in on your favorite podcast app. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club! Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, prohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome back. We're talking about the murder of 25-year-old Christy Mirak in Lancaster, Pennsylvania in 1992. So another 14 years went by. The DNA samples were sent to a place called Parabon Laboratories. You may have heard about them in the news lately, doing some genetic testing. And they extracted the DNA from the semen found at the scene. And I find this really incredible. Parabon used the genetic information to put together a composite sketch wow. of the possible suspect. It looked, yeah, it was. they did three ages of the person using their genetic information. They had three different sketches done. That's super cool. Yeah, they were really detailed, too, right down to eye color. Wow. And the police released those to the public. In addition to this, they brought in a genealogist. C.C. Moore is making a huge name for herself as a forensic genealogist lately. She's worked on a number of high-profile cases in the last few years. And as I understand it, which may or may not be 100% right, once DNA analysis labs like Parabon make a match in ancestral DNA, she traces the family tree back to a single individual or a family. And from there, the labs can match the suspect to the crime. So after checking the Ancestry database, they discovered a match with a woman who had her DNA tested and put on Ancestry. I don't know if it was Ancestry.com or 23andMe, but her DNA was out there. And further digging by Ms. Moore showed that the prime suspect was the woman's half-brother. Oh, wow. And I 
think I read in one newspaper article, but I couldn't find the source to double check it because it's been blocked now. Mm-hmm. But unless I want to subscribe for $20 a year, and I don't really want to subscribe to Lancaster newspaper for that. <laughs> <laughs> but I think she didn't know she had a half-brother. And basically, she was doing this genetic testing to find family members. Yeah, those kind of discoveries are pretty... Um... They're common. Pretty, They're getting common. They're common, but I'm going to tell you from personal experience, they are upsetting. Yes, they are. I've I've had the same thing happen to me. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm not. I'm, I'm I'm just not really sure how I feel about it. But in my own particular situation, I was very upset. Mm. Anyway, Miss Moore tracked down the suspect and put a name to it, and she was very very careful. She said she double, triple, quadruple checked to make sure she was right. And it turned out it was a man by the name of Raymond Rowe. Mm. Now, Rowe was a noted DJ in the area, playing at nightclubs and made the rounds at the school dances and weddings and such. He called himself DJ Freeze. Oh, Lord have mercy. Yeah. (laughs) He and Christy had no known relationship or connection. It's possible she may have gone to a nightclub where he was a DJ. But it's believed he worked in an office down the street. I think it was Service Mart down the street from her townhouse and most likely drove by it every day. And maybe I'm just guessing here, maybe he saw her outside. Maybe he watched her, knew her patterns with her roommate leaving earlier and her being alone for about 45 minutes before she left, I'm guessing, mm-hmm. maybe. Right. At the time, he had a white Toyota uh, with louvers on the back windows, I believe, just like uh, some of the witnesses described. Yep. And at the time of the murder, uh, Raymond Rowe was engaged. His fiancée, who later became his wife, Monica Whelan, I don't think they're married anymore, uh, <laughs> never suspected a thing. Uh, oh, my goodness. In an interview with NBC's Dateline, she told how he came home the night of the murder and how they spent Christmas together four days later and how he brought up the murder of Christy and warned her f- to be careful because there was a killer on the loose. Mm, never a good sign. So DJ Freeze is an appropriate name for this guy. He was ice cold. Warning his fiance to be careful when he knew all along he was the murderer. For sure. So they had Christie's murderer in their sights now, right? But right. they didn't really have any evidence. They didn't feel like they could just walk up and ask him for a DNA sample. So they watched and waited. And finally, they were able to grab a piece of chewing gum and a water bottle that he'd used. Wow. They sent those items to the lab where they were able to extract the DNA and run it against DNA samples of the semen found at the crime scene, and they were a match. Woohoo! So in June of 2018, police arrested Raymond Charles Rowe for the murder of Christy Mirak. In order to avoid the death penalty, in January of 2019, he confessed to the killing, and he was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole, plus 60 to 120 years. And I think that was because of the excessive violence mm-hmm. or... Perhaps he abused the corpse after she was dead or something. I'm not sure. Now, fortunately, Christy's mother never lived to see her daughter's murderer brought to justice. She Aww. died of cancer in 2002, just 10 years after Christy's death. Aww. Well, well, wait. So, okay. I have a question. Sure. Um. So, first of all, how come her roommate didn't have any input into this? She, she, she didn't share anything about boyfriends with her roommate? I guess not. I guess she was really, really private. She had dated this married guy. I'm not sure if she knew he was married or what, but, you know, she had dated him for a little bit, and they didn't know. I guess her roommate didn't know either whether she had a boyfriend or not at the time. They used to go out partying. 
her and her friends and I think her roommate would go out to the clubs and, you know, and that they think the DJ might have run across her there. Mm-hmm. But they didn't believe she had a relationship of any kind with him. If she did, no, nobody knew about it. Well, my first thought was that he probably, that they probably did see each other at some club that he might have DJed at and, you know, just watched her and watched her interaction. Mm-hmm. And then maybe possibly, this is just my, my imagination as you're telling the story, that maybe she snubbed him or, you know, just blew him off in the moment for whatever reason. Because mm-hmm. because later, okay, when they catch him, right, did mm-hmm. he say why he did this? No. No reason. He and just he, told the family that he was very sorry. That's it. For the it, pain they'd suffered through for all the years, for the 25 years between the murder and him confessing. Wow, that's horrible. Mm. But Christie's brother made a statement at the sentencing. He said, I've searched for who could do such a horrific thing, who could do something so heinous to another person and walk away with no regrets. And now I know who. You took away our joy, our security, our love of the Christmas holiday. But most of all, you took away our Christy. Yeah. And he was breaking down crying. It was so sad. He said, we struggle every day to get past the pain. He regretted that his mother didn't live long enough to see the man he described as a self-serving evil fraud brought to justice. He said, I can only hope the rest of your life is as painful for you as the last 26 years have been for my family. Exactly. This murder, as I said earlier, was solved by something that's new in the last few years called genetic genealogy. And C.C. Moore, as I said before, is a pioneer in the field. I'll have more about her at a later time because she's very interesting. She's done a lot of, uh, she's helped work on a lot of cases at this point, and she's a pretty interesting person. In fact, uh, genetic genealogy was used to solve a lot of cold cases in the last few years, including the Golden State Killer in California. And it's really not technology so much as it is puzzle solving, really. But can you believe there are people out there that don't want the police to be able to use this? That just boggles my mind. I I just, you know, what if you, I feel like if you don't want the police to use it, you definitely have something to hide. I mean. Well, you would, you, you think that, don't you? Yeah. Well, or, or like what I was saying before, when you discover that you're linked to something like this, you know, maybe that's just too hard for you to take. But hey. You know what? Your heart little feelings need to get out of the way for a bigger yeah. picture. Yeah. That's well, there's a legislator. It. Yeah. There's a legislator in Maryland, Delegate Charles Sidnor of Baltimore, who has proposed a bill to prohibit police from using genetic genealogy to solve crimes. And I think there are a few others around the country as well. That's he ridiculous. claims it's a matter of privacy. That oh. the people didn't know they were giving genetic material to help track down a relative or themselves and blah, blah, blah. But my feeling is if you didn't kill anybody or you didn't do anything wrong, you don't have anything to worry about because genetics are pretty much one in 50 billion, you know, or, or whatever. There are right. only like 8 billion people on the planet or, or how many there are. And right. if they can track you down in as a person one in a trillion to do something, which I think they did this guy, it's pretty sure you did it. Right. Right. You know, well, your, are... your DNA didn't just hop off of your body and onto theirs, you know. Right. Um, so, you know, why don't you want it? And there's only one reason, and that's because you might get in trouble for something is my feeling. Well, that or like I said, you might be linked to somebody that you just can deal with having known that you might be related to the Green River Killer or somebody. But get over it. God. Yeah. 
Yeah, these people have, I mean, these murders have been unsolved for 40 years that they're solving now. Right. Any kind of person ought to want, I mean, personally, I'm saying right now that I wouldn't care. If somebody tracked down a killer in my family, that's fine. Put them in jail. You know what? They've done something wrong. You know what? Statistically, as long as things have been going on, there's probably somebody somewhere in our family tree that is killed somebody. I mean, come or on. Or something. Yeah, something like that. Who I knows? Mean, come on. And maybe not a killer, but at the very least, we had military folks in our family. And, and you know, I mean, come on. It's just the nature of human beings. They kill each other. They hurt each other. I have and an then, uncle who was very prolific. And uh, he was a pretty much a Lothario. He liked the women. And I have a lot of cousins I didn't know I had. Really? <laughs> Hello. That's since exactly, I did ancestry testing and, uh, you know. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you my little story. It's like my uh, fraternal grandfather, my dad's father, was the same thing. I mean, he was a rolling stone, dude. And that's what happened after my father uh, passed away. Lo and behold, he had a sister. Now, this freaks me out because, to be honest, I didn't really want anything to do with her. I didn't want to meet her. My brother was all excited to meet her. I didn't want to have anything to do with her because it rocked my world, Yeah, to be honest. But, you know, I mean, if she was a serial killer, which she's not, by the way, (laughs) um, (laughs) you know, that would probably have upset me even more so. I think what freaked me out the most was she looked like my daddy, who had been dead for quite a while, in drag. So that really was what freaked me out the most, you know, but hey, I mean, I'm over that. And, you know, grow up, people. Y'all are also worried about the greater good. This is part of the greater good. It really is. To put some closure to these families who lost a family member to murder or more than one family member to murder, it's worth it. It really is. Your privacy isn't that important. And like I said, if you don't have anything to worry about, if you didn't do anything, then there's no reason not to do this. Right. Exactly. But what do you all think? Should they be able to use genetic genealogy to solve these crimes? Um, Leave us a message on our website. You can send us a voicemail at www.kudzukillers.com and just click on the little blue mic in the lower right corner, or you can comment on the story link on our webpage. And that's it. Well, I was just going to say that, you know, we'd like to thank you again to one of our favorite big fans, Diane <laughs> Marie, who let us hear her beautiful voice. And thank you so much, darling. We just adore you. Thank we you do. for being Thanks our, for leaving our that. very first. <laughs> you saved me whining on this week's story again. So maybe Stop that's why you did it. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but we but, appreciate it. And you have a very nice voice. You should be doing your own podcast. Exactly. That's exactly. Can I both agree? <laughs> so uh, buy cookies from our, our sweet girl. She has a cookie business in Rockwell, Texas called Sophie's Love It for Spite. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Okay. Well, that's it for this week. Uh, <laughs> We would also like to mention, like we always do, our new sister podcast, Two Jerks at a Crisis FX. 
that's it for this week. And like, <laughs> Lark already stole from me my line about don't forget to listen to our paranormal podcast. <laughs> oh, sorry. I'm sorry. I just didn't have anything to say much today other than I was impressed. <laughs> uh, it's on every Monday, y'all. And uh, our Kudzu Killers Forensic Fridays is coming up. Uh, so we'll be watching for your voicemails and your comments. And remember, don't bury the bodies without us. Bye, y'all. Bye, y'all.